0: This is Brain Fuzz, the art, music, and culture podcast with Joe Camuza and Matthew White. In one of the final conversations recorded on-site at their Temporary art Centre residency, Joe and Matthew speak with art collector and arts benefactor Tim Schrager. Looking back on this project, they discuss what it takes to facilitate a large-scale temporary exhibition, then the conversation turns toward the ongoing journey of a collector. This conversation is presented in two parts. You're listening to episode 58, the first in a two-part conversation. Sucks.
1: But you should All right, see. Yeah, We're live. With my future sucks line? Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's, that's, that's the introduction. <laughs> that's a great way to start a podcast. <laughs> oh... Tim Schrager, collector, benefactor, yeah, community luminary with Lucite. You know, one of the best ways to support the arts is to buy art. Got that covered. Um, but then, you know, you, you give your time, you give your, your talent, and uh, you know what? Thank you. I don't know that anybody ever says that directly. You know, we're sitting in this building. This would not have happened
3: without you. Tell us a little bit about the building. You are the... My company owns the building. Uh, We bought the building uh, about four or five years ago. Um, We're the second owners of the building. It's Conklin Metal Company. Was here for eighty some years. Wow. Um, And they outgrew it. And as you've seen what's happening in this part of town, uh, it's the industrial users are being displaced, or they're going elsewhere. And uh, I felt it would be a pretty good site for an apartment community. Um, So the building is, you know, it's about 65,000 square feet. Um, It's been added on to a couple of times. Um, And as the building was sitting empty after the Conklin Metal Company moved out. We were getting some revenue from some film companies we had been renting it out to, um, but after seeing what Scott did over at Hathaway with the demolition of of the uh, building over there and the and the show that he curated over there, I I went to him after that and said, you know, do you want to do this again? And I. I just had this idea that this would be an ideal place to do something like that. And he didn't want to repeat and do the same thing with the demolition, which I totally appreciated. Um, but that's how the conversation started about doing something here. And that's less, because that show was a year ago now. Yeah.
1: When you think about how much happened mm-hmm. to make that show happen, and of course this one. I mean, that's a pretty yeah. quick timeline.
3: Yeah. And this one was a lot different. <laughs> he, had a, he had a gallery. To work in in the last one. I mean, that was a legit right. art gallery with, uh, you know, with a dry space and conditioned space. So this was going to be a lot more challenging. Um, but I've always been interested in doing this sort of thing. And unfortunately, uh, I haven't done enough of it. I haven't had enough opportunity to do it. It's, it's hard. Um, this project, uh, I never envisioned it would be this scale, I figured that there was parts of this building that really shouldn't have been used for this show. And plus, who's going to fill sixty five thousand square yeah. feet of space with yeah. artwork? But Scott, and he went crazy on me. He literally he called <laughs> me up one day. I, I, I call I called him, and I said, "So where are we? How many artists have committed to the show?" And he said, "Well, I've got about 41 calls out, and I almost like fainted. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like wait a second, that is not going to work. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is not what I was thinking. Um, and it ended up, we ended up in the 20s, so it it it, it corrected itself, I think, because you know people weren't available and um, and but there were, you know, there were parts of the building that were going to be really challenging to utilize." And as I was telling Joe earlier, they don't, if I could go back a month and start this over again before the opening, I'm sure Scott would say the exact same thing. I mean, we would have done things differently.
2: Well, I guess you're learning those lessons every time you do something like this, no matter how many times you do it. But so in any pop up situation, this one, of course, is is unusual because of the scale and the size. But even in smaller projects, you know what you, you've mentioned time and timeline. But, what are some of the other challenges that you run into um not just as the not just in putting it together but as an as an owner because there's there are all kinds of factors that people don't think about insurance yeah. uh you know, I think I heard you guys mention you we know, were like okay what do we do with trash
3: you know yeah, yeah. that was one of the funny revelations um so you know, this may be a little different situation than you're going to find elsewhere. Certainly the show I, I mentioned that I did with Craig and the show Scott did last year at Hathaway. You know, he didn't run into any of the problems um, there. I shouldn't say any, that, it, that there's so many things that came up here that um, we just hadn't really thought about until the last minute. Some of the things were obvious. You know, I knew there was going to be a problem with the roof. I knew keeping the place dry was going to be an issue, and I was not comfortable with the quality of the artwork that Scott got uh, for this show. About if we couldn't if we couldn't guarantee that the artwork was going to be safe, that was scary to me. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I had a contractor on the roof of this building uh, for you know like a week, just making sure that we could stop the water from getting in as best as we could. There were obviously going to be areas that. There was no way we were going to stop the water from coming in. Uh, but we ended up tarping the vast majority of the roof of this building. We This building's got an internal gutter system because they knew water was getting in. And so the water, that's where <laughs> you see buckets around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the water's being funneled. The water's coming through the roof into an internal gutter system and into buckets that have to be emptied. Um, Scott's got students running around vacuuming up areas. Um, but luckily we got it to the point where we felt very confident that the artwork was safe. So that was good. Uh, the funny story that, I don't know if Scott shared this with you, but, um, was that he was trying to keep his wife out of this. (laughs) He did not want Saskia to get sucked in (laughs) to this, this show. And about a week before the opening, it became apparent that... Scott needed more professional help uh, pulling this thing off. And so Saskia volunteered and she came in and one of the, and she calls me up and she's got a list of things she wanted to go over with me. And one of the things on the list was, what do we do with the trash? And it was like this, like, you know, it was one of those light bulb moments. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, what do we do? with? There's no dumpster at this building. We had it taken away. So people wouldn't just come and throw their crap in it around the, from the neighborhood. So like, yeah, that's a good question. I'm gonna take care of that tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah, this was like at 11 o'clock at night. We're on the phone talking, and and then it became obvious that there were several other things that you know needed to be dealt with. Um, but there were a lot of other things. I, I had I had my company's maintenance crew over here, uh, countless hours leading up to the opening of the show. Um, one of the things that was kind of funny. Was, uh, Whitney and Micah Stancil's video projection in that, in that truck bay. Well, Scott was sure that he knew where the camera was going to go and what wall he wanted it projected on. And the wall he wanted it projected on had all this electrical crap on it. And the plug wasn't in the right place in the room where he was going to plug the camera in. I'm not mad about this. this is just the way <laughs> I don't want to come off as being mad about this. This is the way this goes. Yeah. So they come over. They remove all this stuff off one of the walls. They run conduit and pull wire and set an outlet for this camera in this particular spot. And then, of course, the artists show up. It's like, that's not going to work. Turns out this camera they're using... Has to project like I don't know how many yeah. feet it ended up, but where they where Scott thought they were going to put it, um, I think Whitney or Micah, one of them, told me that the projection would have only been like six feet in diameter because it was too close, <laughs> oh, and it was wow. uh, it was all the way across yeah. the short way across the room, yeah. but he needed like a hundred some feet, <laughs> so that all that electrical work was for not, um, but in the end, uh, it worked out. You know, great, and you know of all the things in the show, um, I think that that video projection piece is probably um, one of the things that, when you look back at this and think, what's so unique about this show? Well, where are you going to do that? Where, where are they going to find a room yeah. big enough? Yeah. I mean, you're talking, what, Turbine Hall at yeah. the Tate? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's not going to be easy. So it's, it was really an incredible opportunity, and Scott knew it and got them in there. And um, that's, you know, one of the beauties of, of his curation skills, I guess, of what he pulled yeah. off here. It's, There's this perception out there that these buildings are just kind of there
2: and they've already got electricity going, and they got running water, and they got bathrooms,
1: and they got yeah. all these things. And it's just there for artists to activate. But it does take someone. What's well, like moving in? Like you know, if yeah, you rent a space or lease. You know, you, you're starting over, right? You got to get utilities and all of that from top yeah. to bottom instead of like you're saying. It's just like this turnkey. Go be creative. Well, it's something sits
2: for. Yeah, sits for a while. It doesn't take long before problems just oh yeah
3: yeah and that was another thing about this building was that we had luckily we had rented it out not too long ago uh, but the last film production company that was in here it was you know it was several months ago so the building had been winterized so the water was off the gas was off the power was still on kept the power on and it wasn't until about four days before the opening that I was over here. And I'm like, it's cold in here. I'm like, wait a second, (laughs) this building's got heat. So I went, I called my office, called this kid at my office that would know how to do this. And I said, Justin, you have got to get the gas turned on over at Conklin immediately. (laughs) And we're gonna fire up these furnaces. We're gonna see what works. Yeah, and turning the water back on. Uh, yeah, because that that's another thing that came up. You know, are we going to do a whole bunch of those, you know, porta potties Are we going to get one of those yeah. trailer bathrooms? It's like, well, why don't we just turn the water in the building back on and, and hope a pipe isn't burst somewhere and doesn't flood the place? So we did that the week, you know, the week mm-hmm. before the show opened, too.
0: The conversation moves away from the Temporary Arts Centre and toward his journey as a collector. Matthew asks how it all got started. Uh, I
3: guess I grew up in a house that was filled with some of the coolest art of the 20th century. Uh, my dad was a collector, um, had no appreciation as a teenager for the art. Um, you guys just, you know, I know you guys have heard these stories before, but uh, when you see a painting, that's uh, basically a monochromatic uh, type of painting, and your friends are walking in the house and they're like what the hell is that? Who made that? What is that? Is what is that? A chalkboard. You know, there was just no understanding. Yeah. And and I was not in any position to to explain to people that came into the house as a, you know, a 15-year-old what it was. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. My dad's a collector. Um, but, you know, as I got older and I I started to appreciate it more. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that happened in my life that really caused me to start appreciating art was that I was, I was a musician, played a lot of music in high school, played in bands, went off to college, uh, studied music a little bit. I didn't go to college to study music, but I always found a way to take one of these half-credit courses, uh, you know, voice class, music theory, piano. Recording arts workshop, um, and continued playing the guitar, taking guitar lessons. Uh, and, and after a while, uh, I know you guys both play music, you know, after hours and hours and hours of playing, you know, I started feeling a little burnout. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, what am I gonna do now? Cause I've always felt that I had this creative energy that I wanted to put to use. So, I went out and I bought brushes and paints, and I came up with this ridiculous idea that um, I was gonna paint paintings on window shades so I could roll them up if I didn't wanna look at them. And I got this idea. You going to see it at Art Basel
1: next year, you wait. The,
3: the funny story how I got that idea was that my dad and I were in New York, And every once in a while, you know, my dad would take us to New York with him on one of his art trips. And we were somewhere in Soho, and we went to this artist's studio, and this artist is painting on window screens. And I think that, you know, like eight years later, I remembered that and had thought window screens, window shades, (laughs) that's sort of where the idea came from and and uh, so so i started painting uh, and after i probably made about my 12th or 15th painting i realized how hard it was hmm. and i realized that you know i'm this is not something that i'm that i'm going to do this is fun you know i'd crank up the music and and uh, i still remember I don't know if you guys I don't know if you guys are playing really in music prefab sprout I had this album by prefab sprout that for whatever reason, every time I put it on, it just made me want to paint um, and and so after after doing that for you know a few years of attempting to to create paintings, I realized that this was not for me. I started playing way more music again mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh and when the time came um i started I started looking at art in a whole different way to buy art instead of just admiring and looking at art. But I think that that attempt to paint my own paintings gave me an appreciation for what you guys as artists do that I had never had before. Um, and certainly the the idea that an artist could paint a monochromatic painting and and call it art, um, you know, I, I learned how to appreciate that. Um, and... Slowly over time, I learned how to appreciate that just about anything an artist wants to claim as art is art, Mm -hmm. and I blame all this on Duchamp. So you know, I've been in so many conversations with people where I just reference Duchamp and said, "And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go look him up and you'll and read about him and read about the urinal, and you'll have a better idea what I'm talking about."
1: that's funny, cuz in the one of the more recent new yorkers there's an article on david hammond's and it's all duchamp which was pretty awesome to yeah. cuz i think a lot of people write that off especially like casual you know fans of the art it's like oh it's just a, just a all or well but you know, look at the look at the thread
2: through recent news with the banana and the duct tape I that everybody
3: gonna, now i was going to bring that up that's yeah. the, that's the latest <laughs> now and it really is challenging, you know. You're down in Miami, and someone duct taped a banana, and it's Catalan. And and uh, how do you explain that to people? It's hard to explain to people. Um, I don't think I have the I don't think I have the ability to explain that properly to people about why someone like Maurizio Catalan can get away with duct taping a banana to the wall and calling it art. And again, I was having this conversation with somebody just last week, and I said. Just go look up Duchamp and yep. read about him. Yep. <laughs> and then see if you can connect the dots. Yep. Um, anyway. Uh, so so from a collector standpoint, um, my wife Lauren and I got married in 1995. We built immediately... We actually were already building our first house before we got married and moved in right after we got married. And now I'm in this house... Um, and it had all these walls and, and there's like, there's no way I'm hanging posters in this house. I mean, it's, just gonna, it's not going to happen. Post college. I mean, yeah. I mean, I got the most awesome giant Elvis Costello poster that I used to have hanging in my house and, and other things. And, and my dad once again comes into the picture and he buys us a housewarming gift and it's like a seven foot square. Abstract painting that he bought from a gallery in Chelsea and had it sent to our house. And this thing shows up. And we had, we had the great room with the, we had a couple big walls. So mm-hmm. he knew we had a wall for it. And I hung this thing up and I thought, that's it. I'm going to start looking mm-hmm. for art and, and start collecting. Um, and, and we started very slowly. You know, the first five years, you know, we bought a few things, you know, we just spent a lot of time looking and we looked in Atlanta and we started looking in New York and, um, you know, we bought work from Alan Avery, we bought work from Bill Lowe, bought, started buying work from Nancy Solomon, who was so disappointing when she closed her gallery because for me, she, she had the best gallery in town for what I was looking for. Um, I loved what she was doing. Um, we bought work by artists that are in this show. We bought, we bought one of the very first paintings we bought it was a Kojo Griffin painting
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, uh, from Vacnin Schwartz, from our old friend, <laughs> Ori Um And and that's really how it all started. And it was kind of funny how uh, how it progressed. You know, we, we didn't have a lot of money when we started, um, and and it was a lot of looking, and eventually uh, you get comfortable spending your money on art, and, and then as you, I think as you gain confidence in what you're doing, um, you have more confidence in spending more money. Yeah. And it was a slow progression, but after we got to the point where I started feeling you know, a lot more confident, about what I was looking at, what I liked more than anything. Because the last thing I wanted to do was buy artwork that I was gonna look at a couple years later and go, like, ooh, why did I do that? What was I thinking? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we had very, a very specific rule when we started. If we didn't love it, we weren't buying it. We weren't concerned about what it was gonna be worth someday. We just, because we weren't really, we didn't really feel like we were buying artwork. Um, At the time, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, we didn't we didn't know what we were doing. We knew we weren't decorating. That was like the last thing we were going to do. We were buying art that we loved and and we never even thought about what we were going to do with it when we bought it. Not for years. It just it showed up. And, you know, you, you go back and talk about, you know, curating a show. Like this, what I uh, Joe asked me if I ever would have this inclination to try to curate a show myself like this, and I just don't know that um, outside of my own home, my office. I have a I I love curating in my home, but uh, but trying to do it in a public space is is a lot of is a whole different thing with a lot more pressure. That's true.
2: Well, when when you say that you love that you love is that what is that exactly there's I guess the cognitive part of it where there's a theme maybe that you follow but in your case not
3: so much a theme yeah but you could probably look back over the years and say well there had to be some kind of theme yeah because one thing we also wanted to be careful of was that we didn't have a collection that was just so eclectic that it just didn't make any sense together yeah So, there probably, it, you know, maybe unknowingly, um, there were certain themes to the collection. You know, when we started, it was abstract painting. You know, that, that's really all we bought for the first five or eight years was abstract painting. Okay, so, uh, do you remember Laurel Gitlin? Yeah. Yes. One of, one of Stuart Haradner's really good friends from Portland that, ended up moving to New York, and and she was in Atlanta. Um, and so here's this art world person who's way more art savvy than I am, and she comes over to my house. This was several years ago, and I'm walking around my house with her, sort of giving her a tour and, and looking at all these paintings. And it was literally just painting, painting, painting. This was a long time ago. And... About an hour and a half later, I started thinking, I said, I started thinking to myself, I wonder if she's bored yet. You know, <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if this is boring, because I'm starting to think that there's something wrong with this collection. It doesn't have enough, doesn't have enough diversity in, in the type of work we're collecting. And I literally, like, woke up the next day thinking, I need to start looking at sculpture more than I have been. And thinking about...
1: Isn't that the old joke, though? Once the walls are filled up, that's when people start buying sculpture. You know, it's <laughs> it kind of like, we
3: need, need more space. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, except except presenting sculpture in your home is very challenging. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine. Yeah. Lauren still hasn't forgiven me for some of the furniture that I threw away to make room for sculpture. So, <laughs> <laughs> um but, you know, you don't need that bench in the front entry of your house. No one's ever gonna sit there. It's just so people can throw their crap on it. <laughs> so we have a coat closet. What do we need that for? That's a great spot for a sculpture. <clears throat> um, and and that, that may be simplifying the story a little bit. I had one of the very first artists that we fell in love with in New York was Rachel Harrison. And she was a sculptor and oh, yeah. it was just, it was, it was hard to acquire her work. Um, so we didn't have very much of it, you know back in those early days uh, but now i think I think that of all the artists in our collection, we have more work by her than anybody um than any other artist and and that was another thing about when i when you talk about a theme and where we were really going with all this is that is that I had this idea after the collection started becoming a little you know somewhat sizable and a little unruly that that uh, I was going to be more careful about adding new artists to the collection. I was going to be more selective, because when we started, it was it was all emerging, mm-hmm. uh, pre-emerging or emerging artists. And then we started looking up the food chain at some of the more established artists that were influencing the younger artists in our collection. We thought that would be cool to have, have those influences yeah. and have these threads yeah. running through the collection. Um, so... Like for example, uh, in our dining room, uh, you know Dana Schutz, we took a liking to years ago when she was very young, and we and we were able to buy some of her work, and then um, and then and then I kept uh, and then Dunham Dunham was somebody that, that I took to very early. My dad was a huge Dunham fan. That was one of the few artists. That I overlapped with. That I looked at was kind of interesting because I I was questioning why my dad was buying Dunham paintings. I said, Dad, this is really like more of my thing, even though Dunham was his, you know, mm-hmm. more his contemporary than mine. Um, but just the the quirky uh, scenes that he was creating with all these crazy characters that he was painting seemed to be more like the kind of thing I would like than my dad. Um, and then what happened was. I started you know, reading more and more about some of these artists that were in our collection. I keep hearing this name, Peter Saul, and I didn't know who he was. And, um, and it turns out that at least a few of the 30-year-old artists in our collection had referenced Peter Saul as an influence. And it turns out that a guy in New York, uh, David Nolan, a gallerist in New York that I had been buying work from... Um, was a good friend of Peter's and represented Peter. Um, he was David Nolan was really came up through the art world as a as a dealer that was selling drawings more than anything. So he represented Peter in works on paper, but then Peter always had some other gallery that was selling his paintings. And 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 David uh, Nolan uh, presented some Peter Saul works to me, and as I I looked at it, and I'm like, wow. I can really see this influence that these mm-hmm. artists are talking about. And it didn't hurt that Dunham and Saul were friends. And, and I had read this interview that the two of them sat down and did an interview with, of one another together. And so we started buying Peter Saul's works. And so like, in, you know, in this one room in our house, I've got, I've got Saul, Dunham and Schutz all hanging, you know, within close proximity of one another. So that when you get those threads where you can connect the dots on those people, that's, I think that's kind of cool. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So, done the same thing. Linda Bangless, Amy Silman, Rachel Harrison. Those three also have this connection and we have this really great piece by Rachel Harrison. It's got a photograph hanging on it. The photograph was given to her by Amy Silman and there's this whole story about who's in the photograph and why the photograph was taken and and then, and then, why Rachel thought it was such an interesting photograph to use to accessorize one of her sculptural pieces. So, those kind of things are really cool in the collection.
2: The um, Rachel Harrison that you, the works that you have. How do they? I'm trying to think. Um, I guess a chronology. You know, I was just at the De La Cruz and saw uh, some of the works there. And then, of course, you've got the Whitney uh, show going on right now, I believe. Right. Uh, have you seen that? I have not. I'm going uh, Are in January. But from a chronology standpoint, have you been purchasing all along, or did you...
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the very early experiences that Lauren and I had in New York was um, we walked into Green Naftali's Gallery. I can't tell you how many years ago this was. You know, Maybe it was 17 or 18 years ago. And there was... Um, there was this Rachel Harrison sculpture, and Lauren and I looked at it, and we were just like blown away by this sculpture. It um, was really disappointed it didn't make the Whitney show. I don't know. I can't believe this one particular piece didn't. It's a it's a really great sculpture she made, and so we tell Carol that we love this work. We'd love to buy one of these things, and of course, we and and uh, you know a hundred other people. Want her work at that given moment, and um, and we had just met Carol, and we hadn't bought uh, more than one or two things from her gallery, and so we weren't on her preferred list yet. Yeah, yeah. And it was a process, <clears throat> and it was uh, you know this is this is one of the tricky things about the art world, and it's uh, it, it makes it challenging sometimes to be a collector. But eventually, eventually, we got to be close enough with Carol Green that we rose up high enough on the list. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll tell you kind of a funny story about our very first Rachel Harrison work we ever bought. So we had been looking. We'd seen a solo show of hers. None of the work was available. It was all going to either museums or sold to other collectors. But Carol promised us that when the right time came up and the, you know, the right piece was available, she would call us. So, uh, this was probably about two years of working on her, trying to, you know, get our first Rachel Harrison piece. I'm going to guess this was just about 15 years ago. And Carol calls me up and says, Tim, I've got the piece for you. And she sends me a picture of it. And it's this sculpture that is one of her, uh, so sort of she she makes these pieces out of hydrocal it's, and, and and she sort of it's really like a stucco process. Mm. She stuccos these things, she paints them, and then she attaches things to them, ready-made stuff. Again, all referencing Duchamp. And this one particular sculpture is this sort of smallish piece that sits on the floor that is only about uh, two and a half feet high, and it's got a little bird that she bought at the dollar store perched on top of the sculpture. And it's called Sculpture with Bird. <laughs> and she, you can just imagine, you get a JPEG of this thing, and I'm like, I call her up and I'm like, Carol, we've seen so much of Rachel's work that we've told you we wanted. <laughs> this, is, this is what I get? <laughs> a sculpture with the bird perched on top? And she launches in to this, like, are you crazy? like telling me I'm nuts, that I should be like, this is, I should be gagaing over this thing. And I listened to her and I took her advice and I bought it. And it sort of opened up the door for me and eventually we we got other sculptures and we bought uh, photographs, drawings, um, a, a painting, which she doesn't do a lot of works that hang on the wall, we've got one of those. So we've got this whole cross-section of Rachel's works. And, you know, about ten years later, so, you know, maybe like five years ago, I was having this funny conversation with Carol, and, and, and it was like, you know what, after living with all of this Rachel Harrison work all these years, I have to say you were right. That bird is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it really, it it's stood the test of time. And there's just uh, there's this great story that I don't know who the collector was some some deceased guy now but this old man that I remember listening to him talking about collecting and he said I remember him saying something like you know don't buy artwork that when you look at it you think oh it's pretty this is going to look great in our house uh, there's nothing challenging about this you know it's just it's just this beautiful work of art and 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 uh, And it doesn't really challenge you in any way. He said, those are the pieces that you're going to be tired of. And so I think that's the thing about this bird. Yes. This bird has been bothering me for 15 years. And I still look at it, and I'm still wowed by it. I I think those are the things that really stand the test of time.
2: One of the things that I heard somebody asking this the other day, and, and it was like, oh, this is a stupid question. But, you know, how do you get started collecting? And it's really not a stupid question for the reasons you just you just mentioned. I mean, once you start collecting at that level, it presents its own challenges. Of course, anyone can start collecting at any time by purchasing works, you know, directly or have a relationship with a local gallerist. But I guess the first hurdle is determining what do I want to collect? You said, you know, love, you love the work, but then there's also something, does the work challenge you? For someone just getting started,
3: how do they, where do they start? I think, I think you just start by looking, you know, you really have to look at a lot of work.
2: And is that a museum? Do they go to a museum? Do they go to a, what do they do?
3: It's everywhere. I mean, your, your museums are great. Uh... Art centers are great. Um, opportunities to get into artist studios and really meet artists is really great too. Oh yeah, that's yeah. that's one of the things that that um, was always for me was the the most fun of all of it was actually meeting the artist, getting to talk to the artist, you know, coming to open studios and walking into Joe Camusa's studio and hanging out with Joe and drinking coffee and talking to him about work. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's... Faster and faster and faster. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest, really the biggest thrill of all of this, as far as from the collecting standpoint. And it's something that I have not had the opportunity to do nearly enough of. You know, I wish I could tell you that I've met every single artist that we own work by. Unfortunately, we haven't. But the the opportunities to meet some of these people. um, And studio visits are... Are interesting this is a lesson that I learned a long time ago that you need to be careful because you could walk into you, you might be looking at an artist's work and think that God I really love what this artist is doing and then you meet the artist yeah and it can go either way uh, oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah and yeah. I'm not gonna name any names <laughs> But interestingly enough, there's there's an artist that we bought a couple paintings by a long time ago, and I never got a chance to meet this artist. And there's a podcast. There's, there are other podcasts other than Brain Fuzz. Out there. They're not. They're, they may not be as good.
1: Oh, there's some great
3: ones out there. Um, but I was I I, can't, I started listening to this one particular podcast about a year ago that I discovered. Actually, it was interesting how I discovered it. I was searching for Tom Sachs, mm-hmm. wanted to learn more about Tom Sachs, and it turns out that Tom Sachs did a podcast with this, uh, with this guy that I started listening to. And the guy, the guy that whose podcast it is, is an is an artist that we also own a couple works by. Um, if you know Brian Alfred, yes, he's he's got a podcast uh, that he does up in Brooklyn. Um, yeah we talked did you know that yeah yeah we we may have we may have talked about this before it's a really interesting i think it's a really interesting podcast it's not that dissimilar to what you guys are doing he's really focused on emerging artists in brooklyn yeah i think and he's become like this beloved figure i went to an opening we're getting sort of off track here but i went to an opening of his uh at a gallery in chelsea earlier this year and the crowd was, I mean, people showed up for his opening. And what somebody told oh, me yeah. later, is that the reason all these people are here, is because what he's doing for the community through his podcast. He's I, giving I people exposure. I listen to those all the time yeah, in because studio.
1: Just it's, and sometimes then you
3: do find someone and you're just like, oh my gosh, well, I can't listen to this person for one more second. That's exactly what happened. And to Brian's, you know, I know he tried to take this, Podcast and 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 pull it in and rein it uh, in, but this this particular artist, it was horrific, and uh, it really turned me off. and it And it's not just that. I mean, I've been to artist studios where, I'm like, eh, I don't know anymore now. Now that I've met the artist, I don't know. Or it can go the other I way. Is it, is, it the,
2: is it the BS detector going off, or is it the?
3: Uh... It can be a few different things. Uh, Yes, BS detector for sure, but the biggest problem I've had meeting an artist, and this, by the way, this has not happened very often. This is a rare occurrence, but I've walked into a a studio and struck up a conversation and I realized that this artist not only, okay, give them the benefit of the doubt, they might not be a good communicator, you know? (laughs) But yeah. when they can't even really get the ideas across about what they're doing, mm-hmm. then then oh red flag goes yeah. up. Red flag goes up, and I'm like, hmm, I don't know. I mean, if they can't have a one-on-one conversation with me and try and and explain coherently mm-hmm. about what their practice is all about, you know, what they're aiming what they're aiming for, it's a it's a real turnoff.
2: How much How much do you run into where it's situation like, all right, I'm doing this, but now I'm going to create relevance by throwing all these buzzwords on top of it? Uh, That's when my BS detector comes yeah, off.
3: Yeah, you guys have had way more conversation with people than I have, like, that maybe you'd find yourself in that situation. Um, I, I don't, know.
2: I we don't do, know. We do extreme vetting, though, before. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> yeah. you guys... Vetting, vetting
3: and editing, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, there's some. Yes. To, uh, but wait, 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 wait! I've listened to all fifty plus of your. I've not. Yeah, you to get a episode. prize. So, so where, where isn't there some kind of bell uh, where someone says a word and you got, <laughs> we go. When you guys we, started, yeah, loved, you had yeah. what? What did you call that? You, I know you. You hated the word discourse.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it was, well, yeah, it was the art speak, um, yeah, yeah, the thing thing is, Joe would ring
0: the bell. Well, that's where
2: the the extreme vetting came in, because what we found was we were having conversations with people that did not rely on those words and they might use them, but they would use them in the correct context. So you let one buy. These guys don't make it to the podcast, right? But there are situations where you're listening to someone and they're throwing everything at you. And you're looking at the work and you go, where is all of that stuff you're talking
1: about? Where is it? Yeah. It's like applied later somehow. It's got to be a really hard position, though, to walk into a studio. I mean, occasionally, you know, we've all done it, going to other people's studio, whether it's for just a critique or a talk, or if you're, but in the terms of like a collector, and you are known as a collector. So all those expectations that yeah. get them, you know, I'm sure that's got to be very. Tense waters at sometimes, you know, in terms of, because some people probably really put on a hard sell for you, and that's probably makes you want to run even further.
3: Yeah, I, I haven't run into that too much. That's good. I, I get—I'll tell you—I get nervous going into an artist yeah, studio I, I, because I... because um, you know sometimes it can be hard to strike up the right conversation. I mean, I can have a conversation with just about anybody, but I don't. You know, some of these, some of the visits we've been on. This is like, I don't want to say, you know, like once in a lifetime, but okay, how about this? Lauren and I are in New York last year, or earlier this year, and, and I've always been a Tom Sachs fan. So this is why I was searching for him a lot. I wanted to learn yeah. more about him. And we've owned, we had owned one of his works that we bought a while back. Um, it was kind of funny. You've you've been, you've seen this. It's it's the one. If you remember, it's a McDonald's French fry uh, cone, you know, container. Mm -hmm. And instead of French fries, he has stuffed this thing with tools from his studio, even his eyeglasses. Um, And he stuck that in there to signify that it's a self portrait. I think that's what he. I'm pretty sure that's what he told me. And below the French fry cone, and he made the French fry cone. It's not like he went out and, and took a, a you know one from McDonald's. He made it out of tin. He painted it to mm-hmm. look like it. He stuffed it so tight. You, I mean, the stuff is not coming out of this thing. And then he took a tie, a, a necktie, and he hung it off the bottom of it. And it's got a little um, tie clip on it that says debaser on it. And then there's a little sack. We're going to get kind of... It was okay to get graphic? This yeah, is, you get this graphic. Go ahead. We're, gonna, we're about to go PG-13. It's totally fine. Okay? Uh, there's a ball sack yeah. hanging from it with a pair of balls. And my assumption, based on maybe what somebody had told me, was it was brass. They were to a pair of brass balls. And so... So Lauren and I finally were in New York, and I think it was last January... Got the opportunity to go to meet him at his studio on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And I had heard stories about his studio. Did he do heard- the tea service? What's that? Did he do the whole tea service Okay. Thing? So, Uh-oh. sort of. <laughs> sort of. It wasn't like that formal. But he's got this space that is the most disjointed, like, aggregation of of, I don't know if it's two or three different buildings. I'm not even sure when you walk in, you're walking between spaces. Wow. I don't know if you're going into the building next door. I don't know if he, I don't know what he owns, if he rents this thing. i got oh, to believe he wow. must own this whole place at this point. Um, but you walk in the front door and he's got a little team of people. He probably, you know, has to do, he's got visitors. He's got, he probably gets a lot of visitors, you know, that, that get arranged. So you walk in, the first room you walk into there's a little like breakfast table and you know, take off your coat and he's not there yet. You're meeting some of his people and they, they're offering you tea, <laughs> coffee, whatever you want. Take off your coat, you know, make yourself comfortable. Tom will be here in a minute. And the next thing you know, uh, he comes in, he's so friendly and he starts up this conversation. And next thing you know, you're going on a tour of the studio with him in this place. It's like a maker shop, like you wouldn't believe. And the storage and the organization, oh my God, I mean, talk about, about organization. You walk through this space where it's all this shelving and everything is, is like, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what kind of OCD he might have, but I mean, everything is in bins and everything's labeled and it's all these pieces and parts that are being used to make these sculptures he's making. It was it was just really cool. And then you walk through that space, and then you're in the painting studio. And it's this huge room. It's the biggest. It's the biggest space in the studio. And there are these paintings on the wall. And he's working on two or three of them at a time. And he's sitting there having this conversation with us. And he's picking up this like marker and walking over to the wall and putting in, you yeah. know, filling in yeah. stuff on this painting he's working on. And comes back over, sits down. And we're talking, and you can tell he's, he's just a little distracted. He's looking at the painting. Yeah. He's talking to us, yeah. gets back up, picks up his white marker, goes over does something else. <laughs> so it's like, this is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And, then he, and then he takes you down into the basement, and he's got this team of people down there. There's a few people down there, and they're, they're making these sculptures, and they're literally building these models that out of a thousand parts, pieces and parts... And then they take the whole thing apart, cast it all to make it in bronze, to put it back together. Oh yeah! It it was just—it was incredible the process. And then you go up to the top floor, and there's this poor woman who is sitting there by herself on the top floor room of the of the whole studio complex, with uh, uh, I don't know what you call the tool. Have you you know his works where he's burning the wood? He's yeah. like burning yeah, 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 images yeah. into the wood. Yeah. She's sitting there, burning the wood, making these images. And there's a there's a four inch diameter uh, suction like vacuum yeah. thing yeah. that's sucking the smoke outside. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. It, it was just, it was really just an eye opener like. You read stories about people like Jeff Koons with 140 employees, and uh, you know whether people you're into that or not into that. And, and Mirakami's got that same kind of thing, and I don't know Damien Hurst, whoever. Um, but the way Tom Sachs is running this place, it's just it's so fascinating, and his hand is in all of it. Yeah, it's not so big that that he can't still have a hand in all of it. But he has definitely not, does not have the time to be making all this stuff himself. It was a great visit and it really, it really um, opened my eyes a lot more to what he was doing and, uh-huh. and, and what he was all about and um, what really got him excited since then. And we had maybe already purchased a second piece, but, you know, since then I've bought a couple more. You know, and this yeah. goes back to your question about about collecting and about not wanting to have this collection, that it's just one of these, one of these, one of these, one of these. We've really decided that what we really want to do is when we find an artist that we fall in love with, like Rachel Harrison, like Tom Sachs now, that we go more in in depth with these artists. And that's a whole different sort of idea about collecting than what we had when we got started. I can see that. Um, and Good. by the way, let me just finish the last thing about Tom Sachs, I the yeah, whole yeah. reason I told you about the brass balls. <laughs> okay. So somehow it comes up in conversation. I don't know if he says something like, I know that like, you know, Maggie over at the gallery told me you guys own some of my work, what do you have? you know, what do you have of, of mine? I said, Well, we got this piece, the the French fry cone with all your tools. And he—that's all I said. I'm telling you, all that I got out. And he's like, "Oh my god!" And then now, I needed you here for this. <laughs> I needed Matthew with the BS detective because the next thing he says to Lauren and I, it's like he cut me off.
0: Don't miss part two of this conversation. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and don't forget to leave us a glowing review.